Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by poet Rupi Kaur. She's the author of three poetry collections, including Milk and Honey, The Sun and Her Flowers, and most recently, Homebody. She often writes about family, love, heartbreak, and womanhood. Collectively, her books of poetry have sold over 10 million copies and have been translated into over 42 languages. As we talk about at the top here, She's about to embark on an international tour, where she'll perform some of her unpublished pieces alongside excerpts from each of her three collections. But before she became a global sensation, she was just a student at the University of Waterloo, writing poetry in between classwork, a teenager at college trying to find her voice, which was a tall order for a woman born in Punjab, India, before immigrating to Canada at age four. As she often says, I was always stuck between two worlds, but never fully belonging to one. And it was on the page that she felt a sense of belonging, a way of finding herself through words. But then, at age 21, on the heels of a viral Instagram post and the publication of Milk and Honey, the whole world seemed to find her too. This was, of course, good and bad. The attention created a career, but it also created outspoken detractors. It is normal for writers to have critics. It is also normal, in this day and age, 
to hear from readers, both the ones who love you and the ones who don't. Rupi has plenty in each of those camps. What's not so normal, though, is for a poet to receive death threats, of which she remains a recipient to this day. And I have to mention this as a kind of warning for listeners, as Rupi and I discuss these sometimes violent and sexual threats made against her. For today, our focus was to sit with Rupi and really just try to understand her last 10 years, the power of her poetry, the pain from which it was born, and the aftermath of being in the spotlight at age 21, when most of us get to make our mistakes in private. Whether you're a reader of hers or not, I hope you'll find something in Rupi's honesty and humanity. I know I did. This is Rupi Kaur. Rupi Kaur, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you feeling? I feel good. A little bit tired. I had a show last night, but I feel grateful and excited to be here. You're about to embark on a 41-city global tour, is that correct? I think even more cities than that. It's more cities than that. Definitely. We're nearing 50? We're definitely nearing like 70-ish. 70? There's lots of stops that haven't been announced yet. Okay. And then there's lots coming um, in other parts of the world in 2023. I just don't like to think about that part yet. Let's not think about that part. Yeah. It's stressful. Let's think about the... the <laughs> Let's think about the next two months and it's 40 cities. <laughs> Rupi's like, I want to go home now. Uh, <laughs> you're going to travel across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Europe, yes. Europe, the U.K. For most people, this would be a very daunting undertaking. How does one prepare for something like this? You know what? I feel like I spent the last 12 years preparing this is the first time I'm intentionally doing it. Whereas, you know, I hit the stage as a teenager in high school, didn't even know what I was doing. I was just I was a sad teenager who's not a sad teenager. And I saw this little flyer. It was like a local open mic night. And I was like, well, everything is wrong with my life already. Things can't get any worse. So let me go see what this is about. How old are you here? 16, 17. And I went... And it was such a nice feeling. I feel like it was the first time I felt heard and listened to. So I was like, I love this. I want to come do it again. So I was just doing open mics. I loved it. It was a hobby. And it snowballed into a self-published book. And then these tours. And I feel like I got on this train and the train never stopped. Like I was expecting it to like let me off. And it kept going and going and going and going until 2020 the pandemic hit. And I was like, okay, wow. So I've been going nonstop. Um, Now I get to stop and be still. I guess all those years prepared me for this next tour. Those shows were tough because I had no clue how to take care of myself. So I feel like I've, fingers crossed, seen the worst of it. And now I'm going in knowing what I need and what I can do. And I feel very good about it. Like, I used to get nervous before every other show that I did. And for some reason, my first show back after two and a half years was a Saturday. And it just inside my body is like a steady heartbeat. I don't get nervous. I don't get excited. It just is because I'm like, okay, finally, let's go. 
I want to walk through all those train stops that you're talking about. I think to do that, we have to go back to your childhood. Isn't it true that your first performance came in performing classical Indian music? Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Definitely not an experience I chose for myself. It was like, you know, immigrant parents trying to make sure their kids don't lose their culture and heritage. And um, I was going to Punjabi classes on weekends, learning to read the language, write the language. I grew up in Malton and Brampton, which are two very heavy working class immigrant suburbs in Canada, in Ontario. So it was very normal for all of the kids to learn music. And so I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I did it for about seven years. That was the first sort of being on stage experience I ever had, singing and playing the harmonium. I got to say, the way you're saying I enjoyed it, (laughs) you're saying it so reluctantly. I I did enjoy it. It was scary. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. My teacher was like very scary. How so? A lot of tough love. Very normal in our community, unfortunately. But if I got a note wrong, you just smack my hand and start screaming away. And, you know, it's being 12 years old, 13, 14, I would be like, oh, my God, every day I'm just going to go to get yelled at. And when we'd be preparing for competitions, it would be that every single day for weeks. From that experience, what propels you into wanting to do that? If that first experience is it's fun, but there's this sort of restrictive element to it. I know you ended up pivoting a little bit into speech competitions in middle school. Mm -hmm. Were those also kind of daunting and and scary? I actually, I think I I did it for like seven-ish years. I never wanted to stop. Was it scary? Were there bad days? For sure. But I think I did love it because it is such a meditative experience and a a very like communal experience that you have with your people. And then the speech competitions, that was really a teacher who was like, I want you to do this, try it. And I'm like writing a speech about the War of 1812. And like, I don't even remember what I said, but I do remember that speech. It was seventh grade was the first time I think most people probably heard me speak because I grew up so shy. Is it true you didn't learn English till the fourth grade? Definitely didn't know it in kindergarten. And then in grade one and two, I was learning it. But like grade three, four, I was good. I was talking to my one friend that I had. You moved from India to Canada around age three and a half. The idea that by seventh grade, that person is like, I'm going to do speech competitions is kind of remarkable. Did you think, wow, this is, I can't believe I'm doing this in seventh grade? Definitely. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And regretting it the whole time. But, (laughs) you know, he was, his name was Mr. Vermont. And he was just like one of those teachers that like definitely changed my life. How so? He sort of just saw me. I feel like when you're in a class of like 30 people, that quiet individual who sort of like blends into the background is usually never seen. And that was usually my life. And I was comfortable with that. But he was like, no, 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 you very much like pushed me out of my comfort zone. But I was definitely reading more than I was speaking out loud. And so I think that's where my love for books came from. And then people like Mr. Vermont in seventh grade continued pushing me in that direction. I mean, I was the same way. Yeah. 
I didn't know people. People are just also like third graders. Nobody should be friends with third graders. They're horrible. (laughs) Kids are so mean. Kids are mean. Yeah. And I was very sensitive. How did that manifest? I feel like my mom always says that I was one way in Punjab when we lived there. And then I was a completely different person when we landed in Canada and we arrived in this like cold city. We arrived in Montreal the year of this horrible ice storm. And it just was like everything sort of about me flipped. On your website in 2016, you wrote, I was always stuck between two worlds, but never fully belonging to one on a land that does not want me coming from a land that no longer considers me its own. I had no place to call mine. I had to build the bridge between these two worlds and attach them together to build my own foundation. Mm. Do you think the foundation of that bridge started when your mother told you, try drawing? I think so. Drawing was for sure the first thing that I learned to do for myself. There was not much that we had access to. I remember pencil crayons, drawing, and there was an older Punjabi Sikh couple upstairs, maybe they're in their 70s. I called her auntie. She would take sequins off of her clothing and we would sit and we would make little elephants and little animals out of them. And that immediately became the thing that I would do when I was feeling too much, when there was a situation happening at home or I could sense any form of stress, I would step away and I would be drawing. You said, as a child, I turned to expression because there was a lot going on at home that I didn't know how to deal with. Mm. Like I said, you moved from India to Canada. Your father was a long-distance truck driver while your mother held down the fort. What was going on at home? It was just us as individuals, but just a larger sense of what was going on with us as a community. Like, for example, my dad was a refugee to Canada. He has endured and seen things at the hands of, like, the Indian state that are horrible. I think that definitely changes a person. When we were reunited with him, because I I didn't see him for the first three and a half years of my life. He wasn't there when you were born, right? No, he wasn't. He was trying to get out because the police had picked him up and then they were targeting at the time any visible sick minority man with a turban beard young boys as young as 13 were being disappeared and so people were like shit we gotta go tens of thousands of people went missing and we still don't know where they are so that generation carries all of that trauma and like those were the people that i grew up with i know uncles who have scars all over their bodies from being tortured, bullet wounds. That was like something I've been used to for my entire life since I was young. When I was reunited with my dad, he was definitely a different person. We've never really talked about that, but I think it impacted his mental health a lot. There's no such thing as mental health in my community yet, like learning how to deal with that. So the home was where that sort of stress came out, not in a physical way, but I was very scared of him. I was a really timid kid. And I think the weight of all the mothers, too, all the wives eventually came over of these men who had fled. They don't know English. They're stuck in these homes all day. And they were depressed. And so many of them wanted to go back, but there was nothing to go back to. I just took that in and I sort of stored it. And how did your mom do? She's very, very strong. She did really well, a lot better than the other moms. What do you mean? 
My mom was able to, and I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it. There is no right way. But she sort of just went numb to it all and survived for her kids and just put everything within us. And I know so many other people weren't able to and experience lots of like suicidal ideations and attempts. But my mom, for some reason, was just like, she had four kids. I know that she went numb because I asked her the day that I graduated. She came to my graduation and we were driving back home together. And I was like, how did that make you feel like when you were all in Montreal and all the wives were together? And can you tell me the emotions? Like, what were you feeling? And she's like, I don't understand the question. And I was like, what do you mean you don't understand the question? For 45 minutes, I tried to explain to her what an emotion is. And I was like, just like, what did you feel sad? Did you feel like this? And she didn't answer the question. She was very confused. And that's when I was like, oh, now I know why you're still here. She actually lost her brother a year before she got married. And then a year after she got married, she was an immigrant. So I think from that point on, she got very used to just going and going and sort of not processing. Is there a piece in Milk and Honey that you think kind of encapsulates what you're talking about here? There's definitely... You looked at the cover of the book like you almost forgot the title. (laughs) (laughs) Performance. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'll stop giving you any shit. Okay. No, all good. Okay, let's read it. Father, you always call to say nothing in particular. You ask what I'm doing or where I am, and when the silence stretches... Oh my God, I think I'm going to cry. Okay. This is what happens when you stop taking medication and you are like feeling real emotions again. <laughs> Whew. Father, you always call to say nothing in particular. You ask what I'm doing or where I am, and when the silence stretches like a lifetime between us, I scramble to find questions to keep the conversation going. What I long to say most is, I understand that this world broke you. It has been so hard on your feet. And I don't blame you for not knowing how to remain soft with me. Sometimes I stay up thinking of all the places you're hurting, which you'll never care to mention. I come from the same aching blood, from the same bone so desperate for attention that I collapse in on myself. I am your daughter. I know the small talk is the only way you know how to tell me you love me, because it's the only way I know how to tell you. You read the first line, you were good. You read the second line and something was produced. Yeah. What was going on? I don't know. It's been a while since I've even felt my own poetry. I think I'm only recently beginning to feel it again. I used to feel it when I first wrote it. And then I got on that train and it was so fast that I stopped feeling any of it. And then I got extremely depressed. And now I'm not anymore. Hence why I'm off the medication. Trying that. And so now I read it and I experience it all. Like exactly what I was feeling when I wrote that. The weight of it sort of hits me and I'm brought back into that. It feels very human. Yeah, I don't mind it. What were you feeling when you wrote it? I have this like one fear, especially with my father, because in our community, the men definitely do not know how to talk about anything. Um, They're very like scary figures who are like 
I'm going to work. Make sure you m- memorize your multiplication tables, and then they disappear. And um, it's always math. It's always math. <laughs> and beyond that, we never really had a relationship as his daughter, and we've had a very complicated relationship that I think is finally not complicated anymore. And so my biggest fear is my dad is 60 years old this year. And then I do the math and then I'm like, what, you have 30 years left or 20? And that's not a very long time. And will I learn more about you between our time is done? And I know that he wants to have conversations now. Like we never saw him growing up. He was definitely absent, but that's because he had to be. And now I see him as this 60-year-old man who was, like, so tired, so physically sick from this, like, labor work. And I see him wanting to have a relationship with his children and wanting to know them at an age when his children are, like, now grown and gone. And I know that he will never learn how to have a conversation and I will have to learn how to have a conversation with him. And that's so much responsibility. But I know that I need to figure my shit out and learn how to have that conversation before he leaves this place. And I have to live with that regret forever. You're not alone in that fear. Yeah. I realized that recently as I've been like sharing those kind of anxieties around with my parents. That so many people feel that too. It's that weird push and pull because you are 29 I'm 27. My God, you're so young. When I first listened to your podcast, I'm like, this person has to be 50 <laughs> because you're so well-spoken. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure that was a compliment. No, it was definitely a compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So well-spoken. God, he sounds 50 and uh, with three kids. I was kids. like, this person has probably seen so much talking to, you know, so much. Like you talked to Marina Abramovich, Margaret Atwood. I love those conversations. Well, thank you. But we're at that age. You're only two years older than I am, where you do think we're living our lives and yet our parents are in that 60 age range Mm -hmm. where they're now kind of getting comfortable with sharing. It sounds like my parents were a little more forthcoming, but nevertheless, that lingers for me and I know it lingers for people listening. There's always an expiration date. There is, but it almost feels like the moment we do realize that it's there It almost feels like, shoot, there's like not enough time. You have some work to do to figure that out. Yes. (laughs) But it has to be a two-way street, you know? It does. Even if you got to drag him, he still has to be willing. He 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 is willing. He's willing. I just, it's so hard to start (laughs) the conversation. We don't talk in my family. Like we talk. My dad loves to talk. Philosophy. Politics. Oh, but when it comes to feelings, barely ever. Do you think that's why you turned to the page? Definitely. My dad had this rule growing up that we weren't allowed to cry in the house. Oh, that's a great rule. Yeah. And I (laughs) cried a lot. There was a running joke that, oh, I'm so sensitive that I would cry at the snap of anybody's fingers. And it was true. And if you cried, you would get yelled at. I don't know why. I think it was seen as a sign of weakness. But now I see it as like, wow, you just maybe didn't want us to cry because you just were so... Holding it like this, you didn't want to see anyone else do it. And you told yourself and you told everybody that it's bad and that it's weakness. And that was your way to survive. But now, you know, we cry all we want at home and he can't say anything because 
there's four women in the house and my brother who will cry with us and then him and he's like oh you're all ganging up on me none of this is fair it's the odd man out he is so funny he spent his entire life telling me how sensitive i am and now we're like you are the sensitive one get it together we're really getting to the heart of this here yeah i wasn't i wasn't expecting to there seemed to be more of a focus on the act of crying rather than the source of the tears. And I don't know how you reconcile with that now as you're, as you're growing up, but you were saying that for the last 12 years, you've been on this train that, that hasn't stopped. To understand that, I think we have to go back to that Instagram post yeah. of you in college at the University of Waterloo. You're taking a class for visual rhetoric. You create this class project. For people that may not be familiar, what was this project? So I majored in rhetoric studies. And so the teacher, professor, uh, was like, okay, I want you to create some sort of visual works that tackles taboo. And at the time, I was dabbling in photography a lot because I always say poetry is just one of many mediums that I use. And so I had wanted to do this work around menstruation periods because, like, I've always struggled with my period, um, with endometriosis. You had to go in and out of hospitals, Yeah, right? hospital visits. When I would get my period, it would be so painful. I just wanted to, like, Ugh, hurt myself. And my mom would have to, like, hold me down and be like, it's going to be fine. And I would be like, oh, I hate being a girl. I hate being a girl. And then I was like, I really need to stop saying this and, like, start loving some part of it somehow. And so I got this idea and then when the professor was like, we want to work, tackle some sort of taboos, I was like, OK, periods like two birds with one stone. So I <laughs> went back home to where my parents live, got my little sister to help me. We shot a series of six photos. My mom was like, what are you all doing? I'm more like concocting blood and stuff. And she's like, I'm scared. I don't want to I don't want to know. And unfortunately, everybody and their mom found out later. And she was <laughs> like, oh, my God, I should have stopped you. Anyways, I posted one of the images online because we were studying the way people react to the same art differently depending on the space that it is in. So like if you were to see the Mona Lisa in real life in Paris, you would feel differently versus seeing it like painted giant on like the side of a building or like a stamp. And so I took this photograph of me lying down. It's kind of like how so many women who menstruate wake up like, oh, Saturday, shit, I got my period and I have like a stain. I posted it in different places. It was fine on Tumblr and it was fine in a lot of other places. And then Instagram is where it was not fine. I honestly didn't think that it was going to be controversial because at the time I'd been writing about sexual abuse, violence. I even was writing about periods. So this photograph to me was just like the regular schmegular thing that I was doing, which I think was very naive of me to think because those were just words. And this was a photograph and this was much more disturbing for some people. So my readership, they were fine with it. But once that photo sort of like left my space and got to other spaces, Instagram removed it. And then um, I posted a second time, removed it again. And then it ended up just sort of like going viral. It was on the front page of everything in 2015. I was so scared because people were so mad. 50% of people were like, this is amazing. And the other 50% were like, we are going to rape and kill you. And I was like, I'm so anxious now. 
You said in Rolling Stone, I think from that day, this anxiety came upon me that's never left. An endless stream of hate that came from every corner of the planet. It was so much. I was like regular kid, you know, going to college, putting my little poems up on Instagram. It was like all of the opinions. Nobody told me log off and stop reading this shit. So I sat there taking in and then it was like all of the emails coming in. I don't know how people found out about my emails. It was on the Punjabi radio stations in my parents' hometown. Like that's how my mom found out. When the Punjabi uncles are talking about it on the local radio station, just assume everybody knows about it. And it's just and, you know, she was like, oh, my God, why did you do this? My dad was like, I don't even get it. What's the big deal? People get periods. Move it along. And I was like, oh, thank God. But it was really scary. I think it was just like it's not human to have that much attention and it's not natural to have that many eyes looking at you and that sort of catapult people immediately started to treat me differently. And you're 21 years old? Yeah. And it was like, oh, my followers went from 30,000 to over 200,000. And I'm very involved in the Sikh community and community organizing. And that week we had, um, I think it was Sikh Heritage Month. And when I walked in, it was just different. People were like looking a particular way. It was, it was fine. It was nice. Nobody was mean. But I was like, oh, the way that you look at me has like definitely changed now. And it sort of like never really stopped. I actually was scared because I was like, oh, no, I'm getting all this attention for like this photograph. Like, do they expect me to keep making these photos? But I feel very appreciative because like they came for the photo, but then they stayed for the poetry. It sounds like the way people saw you changed. But did you start to see yourself in a different way? No, I didn't. People were like, wow, how does it feel? And I always said, I don't know. It feels weird. Like, I think you want me to say it's so amazing, but I'm just doing the shit that everybody else is doing. I have to go unload my dishwasher, have to like do my laundry. But I think I immediately disassociated from my body. And I don't think I stepped back into my body till about 2020. Well, before you step back into your body, you do release Milk and Honey first on your own self-publishing, I think, Amazon platform it was. Yes. The next year, 2015, is that right? Yes. It gets republished. Mm-hmm. My publisher is Andrews McMeal. They're amazing. And they, I was so scared when a publisher approached me because I was like, they're going to tell me to take this out and change this and do that. And they were like, no, we just want this. Was there a particular piece in here that you thought, I don't know if they're going to let me publish this? Definitely. Which one? I think like a lot of the, maybe the sexual assault pieces. I think the first chapter. So this one is from Milk and Honey. Our knees pried open by cousins and uncles and men. Our bodies touched by all the wrong people. That even in a bed full of safety, we are afraid. So it was a lot of pieces like that. I think I was very unapologetic in the way that I wrote about sexual abuse and I wasn't trying to hide it. And that only came from the fact that I didn't think that it was going to become a book and sell like over 8 million copies. (laughs) Yeah. I thought I was writing it for me and my like 10 friends and the end. (laughs) It was not the end. You wrote the book at 18, 19 and 20. This book becomes massively popular. As you just said, you thought it was only going to be for you. Yeah. 
I feel like I'm 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 judging up anxiety. I can feel the anxiety. I'm inheriting it right I'm now. I think I'm still not like I don't know. I think it's really fucked up. I think it's What's so fucked up. This like how the personal becomes so big. Like it went from being back at college and I'm like writing, writing, writing. All the girls are getting ready for the club. I'm putting on my mascara and editing at the same time. And you're multitasking. Um, multitasking always. And um it was definitely very easy for me to write about certain things when I didn't think that the number of people who are reading them now were gonna read them. I cannot write about my experiences with sexual abuse in the ways that I used to write them in that first book, I can't write about them like that now. Why is that? Because I know that there's millions of people watching. And that is like, I don't want to feel naked. Yeah. But isn't the reason people like you so much is because... <sighs> yeah. You are naked on the page? Yeah. And I love doing it for them. Like when I am on stage and I'm connecting with them... I'm like, fuck, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. But then when it's the other people who perhaps don't like you very much and they take something that's like your lived experience and then they rape you to shreds for it, I think that's very hard. That's when I'm like, oh, my God, do I regret doing this or do I not? I think people just forget that these are real life experiences. I don't want to keep having to defend them. There's, of course... Plenty of, as you're talking about, negative press that has been written. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, as you know, because you listen to the show and, and um, I read everything before <laughs> these. So I just had a couple days of reading every horrible thing I could find. And it's unnerving. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, I wasn't built for this. I just want to go home and write. But it is it is what it is. It's like what I signed up for, I guess. Yeah. I think it's fine. I'm also tired of lying and saying I don't care anymore. Because the more I say I don't care, the more obvious it is, obvious it is that I do care. You know, it's it's okay to say that it's not fine. Yeah. At least on this show. Okay. <laughs> yeah. When you say you're not built for this, mm-hmm. I can see it. it's like it's like eating at you. Yeah. I think that writing was something that I truly loved and it made me become the person I am today. Like as I was writing Milk and Honey, I was I went from girl to woman through that book. Then writing became a very scary and triggering thing. Like, I couldn't walk into bookstores. I didn't want to hear the word poetry. I didn't even want to hear the word book. Like, people would say that, and my entire body would just, like... Because it was so many things. Like, when when is the next one coming? And, like, how do I recreate the success of the first one again? Like, that ate at me and just made me so sick. People expect you to do that. Two months, I was given to write the second book and of course I did not meet that deadline but then all of a sudden everyone's like well you know if you don't hurry up if you take a break you're just here today gone tomorrow and then this ambitious part of me who did the self-publishing who did all that was like wait a minute but I like did work really hard 
and I don't want to be here today, gone tomorrow. So I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Keep doing it. So it's like a very hard balance. And Homebody, the third one, is about me trying to actually be like, let me write the book that I need to write. Because The Sun and Her Flowers was the book that I thought the world wanted me to write. So after pouring yourself onto the pages of Milk and Honey, this thing of writing that you love, that you fell in love with, that was your sort of vessel to communicate all the complex emotions you couldn't quite in your childhood, as we've talked about, it got corrupted to the point where the word poetry, you had a physical response to that. Oh, yeah. It would make me sick. When I was writing that second book, I couldn't, like, digest food. My whole nervous system physically broken. I could not get up for weeks. Like, the migraines were so bad for such long periods of time that I was like, some, I, maybe I do need to go to a hospital. That was me trying to keep pushing it all down just so I can make the deadline. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And, like, a part of me is like, I am glad that I did it because I do think if that deadline wasn't there, perhaps I would have never done it. Because it is very difficult to do the second thing. And nobody told me that. Like the people that I grew up with are all like factory workers and people who work labor jobs. And like the fanciest person I knew was an aunt who like went from working on the production line to becoming a manager on the floor. Nobody in my community could guide me or like support me or tell me, you know. And so it was kind of like figuring it out alone. How the hell do you do that? I feel like I got very lucky with my friends. They saved and carried me through like those worst moments when I was so depressed and I couldn't leave my bed for weeks. Um, My friend Rocky, we actually met two months before that uh, Milk and Honey was self-published. And she went on now. She's my manager, my business partner. And she would come over sit at my bed and we'd work and then there would be periods where I couldn't drive. We had an office at the time and she would come pick me up at 6 a.m. and drive me to work and then drive me home and drive me to work and drive me home. And I think that I didn't realize also like, shit, now I'm doing my MBA. Like I went from being an author who writes by herself to now having a team of nine people And I'm like, fuck, there's all these skills that I need to do to, like, manage all of these things. And I was only, like, 23. So it's been just so much learning. And um, those women really, I had a solid team. I have a solid team. And I think that's the only reason I'm here. I wouldn't have made it. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. 
That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. You said in some interview that the strangest thing about all of this is that in your 20s, and perhaps through all of life, but especially in your 20s, we make mistakes. Most of us have the good fortune of making those mistakes in private. Of course, we're all online and, and there's some documentation. There's some hyper visibility for everyone now, but you especially were forced to make these mistakes in public. How do you make those mistakes in public and still continue onward? How do you allow yourself to still fuck up in the way that we all have to? I mean, you're not, I don't allow myself to fuck up. I like punish myself. And if I fuck up, it's like, wait, what did we just do? And then I have to forgive myself for fucking up. So I'm not allowing it because I feel like I can't 
afford to fuck up. If I fuck up, then it sort of feels like it's done. I won't get another chance. You know, how many brown women are even so visible and how many of them get second chances? But you eventually just have to let it hurt and then two weeks later stop crying about it and pick up. But that scar is always there. Cut into your skin and you sort of keep a tally of it. Is there a piece in this one or that one that's that's hitting on that? I think this one, homebody, the one under the... This has been a great joy. Me giving you your books is... is <laughs> I'm happy I can I help. I love it. Um, let me see. Should I read it? Let's let's do it. This is from... It's kind of arrogant, though. <laughs> you know what? We're going to be okay. Okay. This um, is uh, Rupee reading from Homebody from 2020. I paid in blood to be here. I paid with a childhood littered with bigger monsters than you. I've been beaten into a silence more times than I've been embraced on this earth. You haven't seen what I've seen. My rock bottom went so deep, I'm pretty sure it was hell. I spent a decade climbing out of it. My hands blistered. My feet swelled. My mind said, I can't take it anymore. I told my mind, you better get yourself together. We came here for joy, and we are going to feel all of it. I've been hunted, killed, and walked back to Earth. I snapped the neck off every beast that thought it could. And you want to take my seat? The one I built with the story of my life. Honey, you won't fit. I juggle clowns like you. I pick my teeth with fools like you for fun. I've played and slept and danced with bigger devils. That was essentially a kind of spoken word diss track. Definitely. That was... That's the diss track, because I usually don't respond to the hate. But I was like, fuck it, I'm allowed to in my own book. That's the response. That's the response. Is that the response to all of the the parodying that has happened to those people who do that? For sure. You know what helps me is, like, I go back to my roots. That's why I'm sitting here healthy today. I think my community and what we've been through over the past 500 years what we have seen, what we have endured was so much bigger than this. And so I think about the people who lost their lives so that I could be here today. And that's the emotions I channeled while writing that piece. That is what I go back to and I pull myself together. And you're part of this larger legacy that made the work you're doing possible. Yes. I want to pinpoint someone in particular, which is your mother. You have this piece called Broken English that I want to sit with. To do that, can you tell the story of how, when you were growing up, you felt some sense of shame around her? Yeah. When you're growing up and you're a minority, all you want to do is look like the majority. And I just was like, why can't my parents get it together and do that? Like, mom, why do you have to wear that Punjabi suit? When we go to the grocery store, just look like a normal person. Stop yelling out in Punjabi while I'm in like aisle 10 looking at candy. Do you see anybody else, any of the nice white ladies screaming? You know? Mm, You didn't didn't see my mom. (laughs) I'll tell you this right now. (laughs) Grocery store. It's a horrible event. Traumatizing. So traumatizing. She, She yelled at me in English, to be fair, but it was yelling. Horrible. 
just drag. You, they put you in the cart. You get punished in one of those sad yeah. carts. Ugh. It's not fun. And then I was like, I don't want to eat this food and like that whole thing. And that's a normal experience, you know, when you're like an immigrant kid. The food from From back your home, culture. Punjabi food. And, um, you know, we spend so much time being ashamed. I was like, oh, we never really had the nicest things. And I was like, can you drop me four blocks away from school? I don't want people to see the car we are driving me in. And then I hit like 21. And then I like grew up a little bit. I was like, I am such an asshole. Why am I like such a self-hater? The fact that they did all of those things like deserves an award and I'm here. I used to be ashamed of all of that. And that's where Broken English sort of came from because especially the Indian accent is so mocked and it's like the butt of all jokes. And I was like, wait a minute. It's like the last thing that my mom has left of where she came from. That poem, I was asked to write it for an event for Punjabi mothers. And I wrote it over a couple of days and thought, you know, I'm performing it once and gone tomorrow. But that is the piece that everywhere I go, like it will never leave me. That's the one they want to hear. And what's so beautiful and cool is like it doesn't matter who's in the audience and what they look like, what color their skin is. Everybody feels it in a different type of way that feels like they connect to it. Shall we do it? Yeah. Broken English. I think about the way my father pulled the family out of poverty without knowing what a vowel was. And my mother raised four children without being able to construct a perfect sentence in English. A discombobulated couple who landed in the new world with hopes that left the bitter taste of rejection in their mouths. No family, no friends, just man and wife. Two university degrees that meant nothing. One mother tongue that was broken now. One swollen belly with a baby inside. And a father worrying about jobs and rent, because no matter what, this baby was coming. And they thought to themselves for a split second, was it worth it to put all of our money into the dream of a country that's swallowing us whole? And Papa looks at his woman's eyes and sees loneliness living where the iris was. He wants to give her a home in a country that looks at her with the word visitor wrapped around their tongue. On their wedding day, she left an entire village to be his wife. And now she left an entire country to be a warrior and when the winter came, they had absolutely nothing to keep the coldness out. And like two brackets, they faced one another to hold the dearest parts of them, their children, close. They turned a suitcase full of clothes into a life and regular paychecks to make sure that the children of immigrants wouldn't hate them for being the children of immigrants. They worked too hard. You can tell by their hands, their eyes were begging for sleep, and our mouths were begging to be fed. And that is the most artistic thing I have ever seen. 
It is poetry to these ears that have never heard what passion sounds like. And my mouth is full of likes and ums when I look at their masterpiece. Because there are no words in the English language that can articulate that kind of beauty. I can't compact their existence into 26 letters and call it a description. I tried once, but the adjectives needed to describe them don't even exist. So instead, I ended up with pages and pages and pages full of words, followed with commas and more words and more commas, only to realize that there are some things in the world so infinite they could never use a full stop. So how dare you mock your mother when she opens her mouth and broken English spills out? Don't be ashamed of the fact that she split through countries to be here so you wouldn't have to cross the shoreline. Her accent is thick like honey. Hold it with your life. It's the only thing she has left from home. Don't you stomp on that richness. Instead, hang it up on the walls of museums next to Dolly and Van Gogh. Her life is brilliant and tragic. Kiss the side of her tender cheek. She already knows what it sounds like to have an entire nation laugh when she speaks. She is more than our punctuation and language. We might be able to paint pictures and write stories, but she made an entire world for herself. So how is that for art? I remember that day, like I walked into the kitchen. I think her and my dad must have gotten into a fight. Because she was cooking and she was like, I'm just so stupid. Well, she's saying it in Punjabi. She's like, I don't even know anything. I haven't done anything. I've just been in this house all of these years. And I'm like, I've not accomplished a single thing. And it just broke my heart. And I remember just crumpling to the floor. And I was like, how dare you say you're stupid? Like, Everything I do, I'm capable of doing it because of you. Are you, what are you saying, woman? You gave us your whole life. And I feel like I try, I have, have a whole piece about that. How do I make you believe that you are so much more than what you think you are? Does she believe you? I think so. Like I said, that display of emotion was very rare for my mom. That was many, many years ago. I have not seen it since. But when my mom cries, because it's very rare, everybody in the house, except for my dad, because um, he does not know what to do when anyone's crying, all the kids um, were like, what did you do to our mother? And everyone loses their shit. Oh, the whole house will start. All of us start crying because like mom can't cry. Like mom cannot cry. So it was very, very, very different. And I think that she believes it. You know what? When she comes to my shows and she comes to a lot of them, 
it's so sweet because I feel like she becomes a 16-year-old girl because she gets so much love and attention, and she gets to be that 16-year-old girl that she never got to be. And um, they'll ask her for her autograph in the books, and I think my whole family, at least me and my parents, have had this, like, there's been somewhat of a healing for the parents through that. Like, when a child of working-class immigrant parents says that my parents literally sacrificed everything. Like, the first time we went to eat dinner out as a family at a restaurant was, like, after I started making book money. Like, they did absolutely nothing. Our first vacation was in 2017. And so this whole thing that's happened with me, it's really been big for my parents and my family. Because I'm like, I can give you guys what I think that you deserve, which is comfort. So when she sees you on stage now, perhaps on this global tour you're about to do, do you think that she's able to say to herself, I've done something? I hope so. I always try to tell her, I'm like, I can only do this because of you. You gave me the strength and you raised me. You know, you gave up the ability to do so much so that I could have this. Um, But to be honest, she's not that excited about tour. She's like, I don't like this idea that you have to leave again. Can you just like not find a regular job? That's my mom's biggest complaint is that I just didn't become a teacher where I could get my summers off. And she's like, I don't understand why you need to work so hard. And my dad is like, good job. Um, But she's not really about it. She's always she's still actually in denial. She's like, oh, yeah, like, you're going to get off the train, right? Like, when's the next stop? And I'm like, Mom, like, this is my life now. Like, there's no stopping. (laughs) So you're still on this train. The train did stop during COVID. The train stopped during COVID, but outside of that, it continues onward. It continues onward, but I feel like I'm the conductor now. (laughs) That's what I want to ask you about. You're 29. You'll be 30 this year. I Yeah. I, I don't know if you feel this way. But I just don't know where my 20s went. (laughs) Uh, I was I remember being 21 and publishing that first book and then everything in between. I don't know what the hell happened. And yes, I'm turning 30 this year. (laughs) I I do feel that way. The pandemic didn't help. Did not. You've said before that Milk and Honey, Sun and Her Flowers, it's for the 17 year old brown woman in Brampton who is not even thinking about the literary space, who's just trying to live, survive get through her day. And the girl that wrote Milk and Honey is not the woman who wrote The Sun and Her Flowers Mm -hmm. and is not the person who wrote Homebody. So I'm curious how you're thinking about the evolution of both you and the potential person reading the work Mm -hmm. you're putting into the world. The first one I was just writing and the second one I got confused about who I was writing for because suddenly I was like, am I writing for these people? And then, no, I think I'm very clear that I've always been writing for me. And actually, it's such a freeing thing to accept that. I always used to wonder, well, what's this recipe? What was the recipe of milk and honey? I need to figure out the recipe so I can make the cake again. And the recipe was that I was just being honest with me and only writing for me. And there's such a freedom in that because then the poetry just sort of comes by itself. And the thing is, when you are honest and you dig into the most like vulnerable parts of you, that is a feeling that's most universal. So as long as I can continue to write those things, I think I'll be okay. And honestly, 
after the shitstorm of the last couple of years, it is very clear to me that success and happiness are two very different things. And after a lot of external success, I've realized more of that isn't going to fill me in any sort of spiritual way. And so what is that? I always say the thing that makes me the happiest in the world is laughing. And so that's all I want to do, surround myself with good company and people that make me laugh. As we leave, could we read a piece from Homebody Mm -hmm. that I think is you kind of becoming the conductor that you're talking about? (laughs) Okay, we'll do this one and another one. (laughs) Okay, great. Today I saw myself for the first time. When I dusted off the mirror of my mind and the woman looking back took my breath away. Who was this beautiful beastling, this extra celestial earthling? I touched my face and my reflection touched the woman of my dreams, all her gorgeous smirking back at me. My knees surrendered to the earth as I wept and sighed at how I'd gone my whole life being myself, but not seeing myself. I spent decades living inside my body, never left it once, yet managed to miss all its miracles. Isn't it funny how you can occupy a space without being in touch with it? How it took so long for me to open the eyes of my eyes, embrace the heart of my heart, kiss the soles of my swollen feet, and hear them whisper, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. And there's one more that I think is like... Is there a title for this one? No. Okay, great. I think I should really start on the title thing. It would make performing them much easier. Um, People don't... (laughs) What I learned from last night's show is people never know when I'm done a poem. Mm -hmm. And so when to clap and then when I move on to the next one. Okay, you just, just tell me when to clap and I'll do it. Our souls will not be soothed by what we achieve, how we look, or all the hard work we do. Even if we managed to make all the money in the world, we'd be left feeling empty for something. Our souls ache for community. Our deepest being craves one another. We need to be connected to feel alive. That's one. My final question, I guess, is, You're going on this massive tour. Your mom's not happy about it. She's not happy about it at all. Your father's proud. Yeah. As you move forward as a poet, as a human, going onto that stage, Mm -hmm. what do you want to leave behind and what do you want to bring with you? I'm leaving behind that drill sergeant in my head that's so unforgiving And I am going forward into this tour with the idea that it's not that serious. It's fine. I'll fuck up. It's great. I'm doing this to be able to look those folks in the eye when they're in the audience and have the most human experience. Touring post-COVID is just different. We talk about some heavy shit and there's always tears and there's always laughter and it's a whole, you experience it like all of the human emotion. But post-COVID, all the emotions are very, very heightened in this room. And it's just a reminder of what we need, which is that connection. So when I'm standing up there and I see all of them having 
that very visceral experience. I just want them to know, as I guess I want myself to know, that, yeah, we're alone, but we're not really all alone all the time. You said, with the first book, I kept thinking, is this all a mistake? Am I just a one-hit wonder? Then the second book happened, and I realized that I can do this a third, fourth, and fifth time. I just want to give it time. I just want to create the best thing going forward. When I'm 89 years old, lying in my bed somewhere, I want to feel good about what I've done. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're on your way to being that 89-year-old now? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I promise myself I'm never going to sign another book contract. (laughs) That has freed my creativity. I am a free woman. They get the book when I tell them they're getting the book and they will be happy with the book that they get. (laughs) That's the rule. And um, it's allowed me to become creative again. I don't tense up when I hear the word poetry and I'm falling back in love with the thing that people say they love me for. And so it's so funny because it took so long to get there. But um, I mean, I already wrote a fourth book, but only because I had to free myself from the ability to do so, you know. Learn to get off the train and then like hop back on with a nice coffee, get off in a couple stops, smell the flowers and then get back on sort of thing. Well, I wish that for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Ruby Kaur, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Anjali Iyer, Narrative PR, and of course, Rupi Kaur. Her global tour begins this May. To purchase tickets and learn more about her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once there, you can find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's talk with Rupi, I'd recommend checking out Ocean Wong, Jhumpa Lahiri, Margaret Atwood, Purna Jagannathan, Nikki Giovanni, George Saunders, Elizabeth Gilbert, Roxanne Gay, Richard Powers, Claudia Rankin, Morgan Parker, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars on Spotify. Leaving us a review on iTunes or giving the show five stars on Spotify is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at AZ Los Angeles. Music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. 
I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Before we go, this episode is in loving memory of Vladimir Kogan. He passed away this past week at the age of 84. Without him, this show would not be what it is today. He will be missed, but God willing, he will live on through the work we do here every Sunday, rain or shine. Rest in peace, Vladimir. I'll see you back here next week with Bill Hader. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.